Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Dr. Randy Roberts. Randy is the 150th anniversary Distinguished Professor of History at Purdue University, and he's the author of many books on the intersection of popular and political history, including A Season in the Sun, The Rise of Mickey Mantle, published in 2018, and Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, published in 2016. Each of these co-authored with Johnny Smith, who is Randy's co-author for the volume we're going to discuss today, titled War Fever, Boston, Baseball, and America in the Shadow of the Great War, published by Basic Books in 2020. Randy, congratulations on the book, and thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Zach. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, Randy, before we begin to talk about this really fascinating new book, could you first tell us some about yourself? Well, you mentioned a lot of it. Uh, I'm a professor at Purdue University. Uh, I came here in 1988. I have two daughters, wife, and um, you know, I, I spend most of my time researching and writing books, and I have for a number of years. And I'm particularly interested. I've done a number of books on sports, and I'm also interested in film. So I've written biographies of John Wayne, for example, in film, or Ronald Reagan, a small biography of him. And I've written on Jack, biographies of Jack Dempsey and Joe Lewis and Jack Johnson, uh, among, among other subjects. So I, as far as I'm concerned, I live a fascinating life researching and writing about people, celebrities. Well, this is your latest of quite a few other books that you've written. Um, can you tell us something of the background of this book and how it is that you came to write it? Yes. We wanted, Johnny Smith and I, we, we were interested in writing a book about World War I, set in World War I. I'd never written a book set in the war. And, and when we started to think about the war, we were thinking in terms of, okay, how, do, how does war make celebrities? destroy celebrities, advance celebrities. You know, how do Americans understand the war? And sometimes they understand it through celebrities, through representative models. And so we picked out three characters. We wanted an interlo- a book that interlocked very three individuals who didn't really know each other at all, except for by reputation, perhaps. Um, so we, we took a, one person named Carl Mook, who was a German conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which was the pride of America. The Boston Symphony Orchestra was one of the best, if not the best, orchestras in the United States. And Mook happened to be German. And he's going to be accused, through an odd set of circumstances, of being a spy. He wasn't a spy, but he is going to be put in an internment camp. When we think of internment camps, we think of World War II. Well, World War I had its own internment camps for German-Americans primarily. Then we took a person. Mook was a celebrity who was really destroyed by the war. Then we took a celebrity 
uh, who was a, I won't say a minor celebrity, but he, he had not achieved his full celebrityhood, if there's such a word. A guy by the name of Babe Ruth, who is a, was a baseball pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, right? And um, because of the war, he, Boston Red Sox needed batters. They lost so many people to the draft, so many people to the war. They needed hitters. And Babe Ruth was sort of a circus performer as a hitter. He could hit the ball a mile in an age where hitting the ball a mile didn't really matter all that much. You know, the free swinger that Babe Ruth became, and that that can be in, interpreted in several ways, but pr- certainly a pre, the free swinger at the plate that Babe Ruth was um, was 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 not a cherished ideal in an age of the dead ball era, where just getting on base, punching the ball through a, a hole in the, in the infield, just and then advancing a runner slowly around the the bases. The home run hitters just struck out too much. You know, they, they weren't going to make it. Well, Babe Ruth was going to revolutionize the game of baseball uh, starting in 1918, and he will make himself into still the greatest celebrity in baseball history. And then finally, we had a third person. I, we, I wanted to look at the war itself, not just around the war, not that America domestically during the war. So I picked uh, Charles Whittlesey, who was a, Wall Street lawyer from Harvard Law School, um, from Williams undergraduate, who enlisted in his service, who believed that it was his duty to serve uh, the fight for his country. The Whittlesey's had fought for America all the way back to the Pequod War. And so he goes over to seas and he fights in a unit known as the Lost Battalion. And he became he becomes inordinately famous, the most famous American fighting in that war, uh, be, besides of Pershing. Um, and he becomes famous for something he really never said. And it's his his life. The war makes him a celebrity and it destroys him at the same time. Great. Well, before we dive into each of these men individually, you mentioned that they all have ties to Boston. Um could you first tell us um, something about Boston here as, as you're writing in the book? Um, it serves as a, as a microcosm for America in this, in this year, 1918, at the time of the war. Um, what exactly do you, you and Johnny mean by that? How does, well, how does Boston serve as a microcosm? Boston is, is an ethnically diverse con- uh, country, an ethnically diverse city. So it has people who support the war. Uh, particularly the Brahmin class of Boston. Uh, Harvard virtually empties out during the war with students enlisting to do their duty. and But it contains a, uh, an immigrant population, an Italian, particularly Irish population, many of whom so, are opposed to the war or even openly support the Germans in the case of some Irish. Um, so Boston is rich in that way. Boston is also a hub, a seaport for moving troops from the United States to the war. The the trip that soldiers take from Boston to Brest is important. So Boston is important in the war. It it has support, the war supporters. It has people who oppose the war. It has troop movements through Boston. And in, in all ways, Boston seemed closer to the war than just about any other city in America. Well, the book opens with a series of chapters on on each man. The first being Charles Whittlesey, 
you mentioned the Williams College, Harvard Law grad. He's a Wall Street banker. Uh, he's an intellectual. He's a thinker. He's not he's not trained at at, at West Point as a soldier. Um, you mentioned in the book a, a defining moment in his life in in 1915. Um, you say changed everything for him. Uh, can you tell us what happened that that day in May and and what effect did that have on on his thinking about about the world because he he began to think totally differently than he had. Wilsey is a, a I, I don't want to say a strange character. I don't want to say an odd character, but I'd say a free thinker. I mean, he is does not fit the profile entirely of a Wall Street lawyer. He's not very concerned about money. He's concerned about ideas. He was a good friend from Williams with Max Eastman. Uh, and, and, and he becomes a socialist. Whittlesey adopts socialism uh, as, as his ideal. But he breaks with the Socialist Party over the war. And what influences Whittlesey was the sinking of the Lusitania. And Whittlesey frequented the Harvard Club at, at, in New York. And that shook the club up. I mean, this, is, this represents the America of Theodore Roosevelt, the America of, of people who were sensitive to America's honor and to attacks on America. And the sinking of the Lusitania by the Germans in um, 1915 just changed his world. You know, from then on, he's, he, he leaves the socialist fold uh, party. He, he, he realizes that you can't be a, an internationalist. You can't be opposed to the war. The war becomes visceral to him. It becomes personal. And he is determined... After that, America is going to get in the war. And when America gets in the war, he is going to be prepared to lead troops. So he enlists into what's known as the Plattsburgh movement, where they go into upstate New York and people go to Plattsburgh and they paid their own way to train, to become soldiers, to become officers. Sure. Well, the story, story of Whittlesey is one of probably an unlikely hero of the war, but uh, the picture of Karl Muck is is one of a bit of a darker shade. You know, he's a victim of accusations of espionage for the imperial gov- uh, German government. Um, and this is at the peak of his, his career as a, as a world-renowned maestro. Um, you have a section in the book speaking about uh, Roosevelt's America for Americans program. Uh, what, if, what influence did that program have on the Providence Journal's uh, editorial that ran against Muck and and really began his sort of downfall. Well, yeah, the Providence Journal, a kind of a the editor made some outlandish charges against Muck, but there's there's no question that there was a heightened xenophobia in America during World War One, and the Rose, excuse me, the Wilson administration didn't help matters very much with passing laws like the Alien Act and the Sedition Act. Uh, there was almost a demand for a hundred percent Americanism. You know, you didn't argue with the Wilson administration. You didn't oppose the war. You didn't speak out against the draft. Uh, that combined with a a more boister, boisterous Americanism coming out of Roosevelt and the Plattsburgh movement, kind of made it difficult to be to have subtle differences of opinion in World War One. You know, this is an age that famously made everything German, uh, 
it got rid of everything German. You know, sauerkraut became Liberty cabbage. Dachshunds became Liberty pups. Hamburger became Liberty steak. Okay, even to use those words was verboten, but you couldn't use verboten either because it was German. They they stopped teaching German in high school. There was a, an all-out attack on anything German that somehow it, it smacked of steel-helmeted Huns. Well, you write that there was a bureau investigation into Muck as as a secret agent, uh, which which ended up shedding light on his personal life, you know, revealing details, even of a relationship he has with a mistress, which led to even further questions and concerns about his correspondence and letters. Um, George Herman Ruth also was a bit of a womanizer. He he had a German sounding name. Why did Ruth have such a different experience than Muck this year? Interesting, because, you know, Ruth could speak German. He grew up in, uh, at least he could speak. Lou Gehrig claimed that he could speak. He spoke German with Lou Gehrig's German-speaking parents. Um, he grew up in a German section of Baltimore. His last name, Ruth, is, is, is a German name, George Herman. But somehow he escapes it. He, you know... He was the babe, okay. He 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 was he was all American in a sense that he was just this fabulous athlete. He didn't care about the war. He didn't speak about the war. He he was not a Karl Muck who was very sensitive to his German heritage, and so Babe just existed in a level of his own. It was almost like you know he's not. I'm not German. I'm I'm Babe. How can you be any more American than Babe Ruth became? So Babe was kind of an exception. He's an interesting character uh, in a sense of how celebrity grants you a privileged status in America. Maybe it does today. It certainly, I think it does. It certainly did at that time. Sure. And the nickname Babe became a legend and, and so did the home runs he would hit with, with what they called the war club, right? Um, yeah. Monster home runs. Absolutely. Right. Well, what was it about the home runs that Babe Ruth hit that, that seemed to inspire Americans, particularly at, at a time of war and, and, and fueled sentiments of, of patriotism? Well, certainly we, we uncovered editorials and newspaper articles comparing Babe Ruth's power at the plate to America's power in Europe. They, they we're, we're bringing something that the Europeans don't have, this power, this freshness, this eagerness, this willingness uh, to, to fight to, to the very end. Um, Babe Ruth's power just shocked Americans. Nobody hit the ball like that before. Before Babe Ruth, most home runs were sort of happy accidents, at least for the teams that hit him. You know, it's an an outfielder just played too far in and the ball got over his head or he misjudged the ball and it got over his head. You know, nobody came up. I mean, we had guys with a nickname like Home Run Baker that I think hit his top was like 12 home runs in a year, but he played in a smaller park. But nobody hit Babe Ruth's towering home runs. Now, the interesting thing is, he only hit 11 home runs in 1918. He was not a full-time batter. And there were times where he was ill and there were times where he didn't play. And there were times when his manager, who didn't want him playing uh, batting that necessarily, his manager didn't trust Babe Ruth at the plate, didn't trust the, this whole home run philosophy and swinging for the fences. And, uh, and, and so 
it, there's a lot of controversy about Babe Ruth in that sense, but he clearly threw a light on the future of the game that the crowds, Babe Ruth had pitched no hitters. He was a, he was the probably the best left-handed pitcher in baseball, but he never heard the crowds explode with excitement like they did when he hit home runs. When he even when he swung and missed, it was a miracle to see. Sure, well, Randy, you've told us a good deal about these men featured in War Fever. One was made an obvious hero, one an unlikely hero, and the third made to be a villain. Um, the war was an important context to integrate into these portraits, but it wasn't the only uh, thing going on in 1918. This was also the year of the, of the Spanish flu. Um, how does this context help you tell your story? Well, when, when we started this book, one of, the, one of the issues that I wanted to examine was the flu. Okay, I wanted the flu to be like a character in the book. Okay, as important as Whittlesey, as important as Babe Ruth, as important as Mook. Um, it, it didn't become quite that. But, but the reason I wanted it is because when the Boston goes to spring training in, in, in March of, uh, of, of 1918, the flu is, has just broken out in Kansas. We think the 1918 flu probably started in, in Haskell County, Kansas, around a military camp. And, and, and it broke out, and it was bad. People were dying from it, but it wasn't the terrible mutated flu that will come back to America. But when they're in spring, spring training in Arkansas, the Red Sox, people come down with the flu. They, they talk about a perfect – newspaper articles were headlined, perfect reign of the grip, another word for the flu. Babe Ruth in May of, of – of 1918 will get the flu very, fairly bad. There's rumors he's going to die. That wasn't necessarily from the flu; it was from the treatment that they gave him for his, his uh, tonsils. And but there was a fear that this flu was was going to was breaking out, and then it kind of disappears. Okay, it goes overseas with the sailors, with the soldiers going overseas, and then it comes back to America in in late August 1918. It broke out in three places about the same time, in Brest, France, in Freeport, Sierra Leone, Freetown, Sierra Leone, and in, in Boston, Massachusetts, United States. And this is the flu that will kill most of the 675,000 Americans that will kill. And so, you know, I, I wanted the flu to be a, a character in the book, this Going overseas, coming back with soldiers, going overseas with soldiers. Uh, space kept us from from talking as much about it as I really wanted to at the initially of the book. And and ironically, the book comes out literally the year that, or excuse me, the month, the week that America goes on lockdown. So if if I knew that there was going to be a pandemic, I would have made it more of a character. But you know, we didn't know it. We just you know, I was still looking at 1918 pandemic as as history, not as prelude to the present. Sure, sure. Well, what seems to be one of the main goals of the book is to teach something of of the values and also the fears of the country uh, during this period. Um, and and the 
values and fears of Boston in particular uh, during the time of the First World War. Uh, Randy, what were these values and fears? Uh, values, can you repeat that question again? Yeah, it seems to be one of the main goals of the book to 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 teach something of, of what Americans valued at the time of the First World War. World War, and also what they were afraid of um, uh, going into the war. Uh, can you expound on on some of that? What what were some of those values of Americans and uh, folks living in Boston, uh, as well as their fears during during the time of the war? You know, one of the, the greatest values that people like Whittlesey shared, and in, in Harvard graduates and Harvard undergraduates at the time, Whittlesey's brother who went overseas, for example. Is is a belief in service. Okay, they they didn't have to be drafted. You know, they they willingly went overseas. They went overseas in droves to fight for what they felt was a, a noble cause: the British and the French fighting against an attacker, the fighting against the people who had marched through Belgium, and so there is this this unity of the Whittlesey, Let's call it a class. This group of people. Uh, who 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 had run America for a great number of years, um, and they, I think there was a fear, and you see this in the Wilson administration, that America wasn't totally united, that they didn't all believe the same thing, that we were a a a, a, a nation of many different peoples, that there were Irish in America who didn't hold the same values as Whittlesey's. There were Germans in America that didn't hold the same values, that there were wobblies in America that had different political views and trying to, how do we keep the country from splintering apart? You know, Wilson wrestled, I think, very unsuccessfully with this, with this primary question. How do you keep a multinational country, a people who are inheritors of different traditions, different political beliefs, different ideas, how do you hold them together and how do you define uh, what an enemy is and what a citizen is? Well, it's a fascinating set of stories that that you've woven together. Um, Randy, what are you hoping readers will take away from the book? Well, for every book that I write, the first thing I hope they take away is I hope they like the book. You know, I, I hope they find the book accessible, interesting, then it carries you along, that it's, it, it's a good read. And secondly, is kind of the, the intersection, again, of, of political history, of popular culture, of, you know, th- that it, it looks at different strains of, of, of American life. And that st- the people who read it will come out understanding a little bit more about World War I. That it wasn't just you know over songs like over there that there that there was a complexity to it a richness to it uh, that maybe they hadn't seen before. Sure. Well, Randy, we've taken up some of your time now discussing your work, uh, but before we wrap up, could you tell us what you're working on now and what readers might expect from you next? Yes, I, I, I'm working. I had written a book a while back, a biography of Joe Lewis that I found interesting. And I'm, I'm looking at some Joe Lewis and some other people as they move into World War II era. 
So I'm going to go back. The course that I teach at Purdue, which is the most popular course and a course I enjoy, is a course on World War II. So I'm going to look at some athletes and some uh, non-athletes, particularly black Americans in World War II. Great. Well, this sounds like great projects. Um, But for now, thank you for writing this book, War Fever, Boston Baseball in America in the Shadow of the Great War. It was published by Basic Books in 2020. And Randy, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. And thank you to everyone listening. I'll see you again next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. (laughs) 